0: Thank you, Nathan. Good evening, church. If you will take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 1. I cannot tell you how excited I have been for tonight and to start this this book together. Colossians chapter 1. If there is nothing better than Christ, nothing more beautiful, nothing more valuable, nothing more imminent, what then? If there is no one higher, and if there is no one more powerful, if he is the greatest, if he is the foremost, if he is the best, if he is the finest, if he is the most outstanding and the most excellent... What then? If no one is before him, and if no one will come after him, if he is the creator of all things, and if he still actively is holding all things together, what does that mean for us? What does that mean for our life? What would that mean for our religion, for our church? What would that mean for our attitude or our priorities? What would that mean for your marriage, and your relationships, your parenting, your career? What about when people are unkind? Does it matter that Christ is the greatest if people are unkind to you? What about if they sin against you? What does that mean? If Jesus is the greatest, the leading, foremost, best, finest, chief, most outstanding, most excellent, most distinguished, most prominent, most eminent, most important, on top, famous, renowned, celebrated, illustrious, supreme. If he is the highest ranking, the chief, head, top, foremost, principal, superior, premier, first, prime, greatest, If he's dominant, no, pre-dominant. If he's imminent, how about pre-imminent? What difference would that make? How would that affect, as we say, your Tuesday afternoons? What difference does it make? I think the book of Colossians teaches us that it makes all the difference in the world. And the question for us is... Not only what difference does it make, but do we see Jesus like this? Do we worship him as the preeminent God? Or do we settle for some smaller shadow or version of God? You see, if we have a God like this, if we worship a God like this, it is going to rearrange our lives people will be able to see a difference. And I think that is the point of Colossians. That Jesus is more important than you have ever dreamed to imagine. And that you and I must, as we see him as such, rearrange everything in our lives around that ultimate reality. You see, each one of us has previously, perhaps we still do, we've organized our lives around ourselves. To one degree or another, we have placed ourselves at the center as the most important being in our universe. And we get very frustrated when other people don't recognize this, don't we? Why are there quarrels and fights among you? To one degree degree or another, we have done this. And yet, Colossians is written to us in part to bring our kingdoms down. So that no one would compete with Christ. Who is the firstborn of all creation and the firstborn of the dead. The book of Colossians is written... Especially according to verse 18 to show us so that in everything Christ may be preeminent. I'll tell you, I need this book. I need this book as much as it has baffled me. I need this book because I don't know about you, but I am so constantly tricked into thinking that what I see in the mirror is preeminent. I would never say that in an argument. But functionally, I often slip into thinking that I am the sinner. And every time that I place myself in the center of my life, every time I fall into thinking, into this kind of thinking, I, I, I would say, you know, Jesus is really important and he's great, but I'm important too! And then my life will be filled with frustration and emptiness, perhaps depression and idolatry. St. Augustine is a famous theologian, perhaps I would say probably the most important theologian since Paul, who lived probably about 15,000 years ago, 1,500 years ago. We'll go with that. 15,000, yeah. Y'all are in a good mood. You've had dinner. (laughs) Augustine lived 1,500 years ago or so. And he famously said in in one of his most well-known writings, he said this. He said, Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord. And our heart is restless until it finds rest in thee. Have you heard that before? We have been made for God, and so our hearts are restless until we find rest in Him. You and I were made by God for God. And any time that we try to carve out some other existence that doesn't center around that primary truth, our lives will be, at best, full of frustration, and at worst, full of demonic self-destruction. Perhaps the tagline for this series should be, before everything, Jesus. Doesn't that resonate with you? That, that truth, not the tagline, but that, that truth? I mean, like, don't, don't you feel that? I mean, I think you know what I mean. That, like, that deep down, don't you know That there is something greater than you. That there is something more to this life. Something better than living for yourself. Don't you feel that? Well, there is. Colossians 1, verse 15. It's a well-known passage from this short letter we think it's probably a hymn that was recorded in the early church and it says this, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by Him all things were created. In heaven and in earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things. of the cross. We can talk to this God. So let's do that now in a moment of prayer. Will you please pray with me? Father, my prayer for tonight is the same as it will be for every night throughout this series. Would you help us see Jesus as the most important, most precious being in all the universe help us to see him and help us to respond to him in complete worship and surrender father i pray that tonight and in this series that as your word is is proclaimed i pray father that we would all be shaped to be more in the image of christ So, Lord, to that end, I pray that my words would fall to the ground, blow away. They can be forgotten. Just let your word remain, please. Let it bear a tremendous amount of fruit, not for our glory, but for the glory of Christ. And we ask this in his name, the name above all names. Amen. For the next four, five, six months, I don't know, we're... (laughs) We're going to work our way through very carefully this letter that was written by the Apostle Paul when he was in prison to a church with people that none of us have ever met. Isn't that a strange thing to do, if you think about it? Now, I'll tell you that the way I'm approaching this is I figure that if you're here on a Wednesday night, and you don't have to be, and it's pouring down rain that you want to hear the Bible. So we're going to talk, we're going to talk Bible uh, on, in our time together. But that's what this is. This is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a church that he had never been to. A church that he had never met. Paul wrote the letter because just like in all true churches, there were many wonderful things to celebrate. Things to praise. And... Like all true churches, there were also problems, things that needed to be addressed and corrected. Now remember, this letter was not written to us, but it was preserved, it has been preserved by God for us. So as we read it, if, if we're going to get the most out of it, we need, to, we need the Spirit of God to open our eyes. This is a supernatural process. This is not an intellectual or an academic or a homiletical exercise. We, we need God to work so that we can understand it. And I believe that he does that as we read and as we We understand the words, particularly in their original context. This is not a 21st century document. Do you know how I know? There are no emojis. It's very clear. (laughs) It's not a 21st century document, so we can't read it like that. Because if we do, we'll be be even more perplexed than we would be now, but we would end up with ideas and, and applications that are different than what Paul had in mind and what God intends for us. And so we don't want to do that. So our goal tonight is to become acquainted with, to be introduced to this letter. So we have some basic questions to ask. Who wrote this letter? You're like, Paul, that's easy. It's the first word, right? What's the next question? We'll we'll talk about that. Uh, Who wrote the letter? Who was it written to, right, the audience? And then most specifically, why was it written Now the reason we have to ask those questions is not just because that's the beginning of what like your study Bible says, but because that's really going to influence the way we interpret this and the way that we apply it. So we're going to take some time tonight and uh, it's actually, a lot of it is wrapped up in the first two verses of our text this evening. So we're going to do that by beginning with Colossians chapter 1 verses 1 and 2. So will you please read along with me in Colossians 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We can look at these two verses and get a lot of the answers to our question. Let's start by thinking about the the author. And as most letters from this period in time do, as nearly all the letters, I believe all the letters in the New Testament, they begin with a statement of authorship. The letter claims to be written by Paul, and even though there's some cranky people that, you know, bicker about that, I think there's plenty of reason to think that it is indeed written by Paul. Uh, one of the main reasons is that and one of the most practical reasons is that there are so many practical personal comments that Paul makes about his relationships in this letter, particularly in chapter four. Also Paul says that he wrote it that 's really helpful he doesn't just say it once he actually says it twice uh, at the very beginning and also at the very the very last Verse. You see that in chapter 4, verse 18. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. So even if, and it's, it's possible that someone else wrote down this letter, perhaps Timothy, perhaps Epaphras, or someone else, we can consider it as being from the pen of, of Paul. And so here Paul follows the same pattern that he follows in all of his letters. He, he tells us who he is, and then he, <laughs> he tells us why we should listen to him. But you're wondering that sometimes. You wish I would begin like that, why you should listen, right? Paul begins with a statement about why we should listen to him. He claims to be what? An apostle of Christ Jesus. Now, Paul's position as an apostle would, would have been very important to the church at Colossae. And it'd be important in the same way that it's important to us. And that's because apostles have unique authority. It's, their authority is different than the authority of, say, a pastor or a church planter or a missionary or a smart, you know, theology kind of guy, right? It's, it's a different kind of authority, Paul had been selected and called, as he reminds us in this very verse. Not by his own decision. Did Paul have how much say did Paul have on the road to Damascus, right? Like if Jesus appears for you, appears to you, and then you're blind and he's like, by the way, you're gonna go do this, and Paul's like, Okay, right? Like, I mean, how much I mean it was not according to Paul's will. God God did this. And so now Paul is in his service by the will of God to be an apostle. The text also says specifically that he is an apostle of Christ. And by the way, the fact that he's an apostle means that he would have authority. I think I'll actually get to that in a minute. Never mind. So he is an apostle of Christ. That is, Paul is representing Christ himself. Do you remember that Christ promised to build his church? It's a wonderful promise. A promise to build his church, and he would do it upon the testimony of the apostles and the prophets. Like like someone builds upon a foundation, they would be the foundation, and then God would build upon that. That's what Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20 says. It says that the church is being built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. In other words, God himself has selected for us some mouthpieces, prophets and apostles to lay a doctrinal and verbal foundation for the church. That means that the church is constructed in large part upon doctrine, ideas, true statements about God. And since God is the builder of the church, he gets to choose the foundation. And one of the instruments he chose was Paul. This is why, even though Paul had uh, never, we don't believe, had ever visited Colossae, he never visited the church there, and he has never visited, to my knowledge, Trinity Baptist Church, right? So this is why he can, he can have authority in another place, that's why his words have the authority of God. Timothy, Paul's companion, or Epaphras, who we'll talk about later, they don't have the same kind of authority. Though Timothy is, is listed as our brother, so it's a close connection with Paul. I think one of the applications that we could go ahead and, and draw from this, besides hopefully developing a new submissive interest in the book of Colossians, is we can notice that knowing Christ makes people kingdom-minded. Knowing Christ makes people kingdom-minded. If you'll notice from this, this first verse how, how Paul and Timothy, and we'll see as well Epaphras, they are deeply concerned with the spiritual well-being of a church. A ch- a, a gr- an assembly of Christians... Particularly, this assembly of Christians at Colossae—the very existence of this letter—represents the apostolic and the pastoral concern and the theological concern that they had for another group of Christians. Isn't that isn't that interesting? Paul, we of course know, gave his life to establish and strengthen the church, even churches that he never visited. Now, why would someone do that? Unless they were captured by a vision of a preeminent Christ that completely altered their life. All throughout this book, we're not going to go through this much tonight, but you will hear constantly and earnestly how Paul and Timothy were pleading, were pleading in prayer on behalf of this group of Christians that they had never met. What an interesting thing. Do you pray for other churches? Do you pray for this church? Do you pray for new churches? Epaphras is the one who probably planted this church, we can suppose. And he also, he was deeply concerned, not just with the salvation, but but with the spiritual maturity. Of this body and so much so that he was willing to travel to paul probably in rome probably in prison to get help on a matter of doctrine as we'll see tonight so i think one of our early takeaways is that knowing christ produces a concern for his ministry a concern for his kingdom wherever that may be we have an interest of how the church is doing in cuba and how it's doing in europe We have an interest in church planning efforts in China and how our brothers and sisters are being persecuted and killed in Pakistan. We have a deep interest in them. As much interest as I have in my own children's lives. Do we not? Perhaps you've heard it said before, you can't love Christ and not love his bride, the church. Each of us, not just pastors, but each of us should be very concerned with the universal state of God's kingdom and the spiritual well-being of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Practically, that means that each one of us should be invested in one another. You should be interested in what's going on in the lives of those who are sitting in this room and those who are in your Sunday school class and those you pass in the hallway and those you serve with here. A deep interest in helping one another reach maturity. We must care about and find intentional ways to express concern with the spiritual health of one another. Healthy Christians are kingdom-minded Christians. They're kingdom-building Christians. So that's the author. Let's think about the audience for a moment. Verse 2 tells us that this is written this is a letter written to a group of saints at the church at Colossae. Look again at verse 2. To the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, Grace to you and peace from God our Father. There was a group of our own brothers and sisters who were fellow member who are fellow members of God's family that were living in a particular town called Colossae. Let's think about that city for just a moment. That, it was a city that we, we can study historically and we understand was a, a very diverse city that was located in, in a region known as the Lycus Valley there in, in what is now modern-day Turkey is really close to another, another town with some biblical references, Laodicea, which is mentioned a couple times in this book. Can anyone remember where Laodicea is mentioned? They are the famous lukewarm church, or infamous lukewarm church, right? They were just down the road, about 11 miles, a sister church, and we see interaction between them in this book. In fact, Paul tells the church at Colossae in chapter 4 verse 16 to be sure that they take this letter to Laodicea and be sure that they read it. And then he also says, be sure that you get the letter to, from to Laodicea and y'all read it. So there's a, it's reminding us of the relevance of this book, not just for the church at Colossae, but for, for other churches, which uh, is a wonderful reason for it to be in our canon of Scripture. He tells them to read his letter to Laodicea, which we don't have. It, is, it has been lost. If we had it, we would probably have 67 books of the Bible. As best we can tell, Paul never visited this town or this church. I, I discern that from chapter 2, verse 1, where he says, For those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. Gives us the... Uh, Suppose that he probably probably didn't go there. There's several instances in this letter that make us that make us think that the closest Paul ever probably got to Colossae was Ephesus, which is 120 miles away. A, another major, more significant city, as as you know, it appears that the church was probably planted and maybe even pastored by Epaphras. If you look over at chapter four, verse twelve. We we read about, about Epaphras. Chapter four, verse twelve gives us the indication that Epaphras, who is one of you, is likely from Colossae and and was among the members of, of this church. We read about the sort of character that he had there in verse twelve. He's a servant of Christ Jesus. He greets you, always struggling on your behalf in prayers. That you may stand mature and fully assured in the will of God. Can I just say that this, this kind of man is the kind of pastor that you should seek. There will be a day when Mark is not here. There will be a day when I am not here. And as a church, you will be responsible for selecting another pastor for yourself. Look for someone like Epaphras. Look for someone who, the text tells us that he works hard, that he's given to prayer, that he's concerned with doctrine and with spiritual maturity. There are a lot of guys out there with seminary degrees that do not have those qualifications. Don't hire those clowns, right? Look for someone like Epaphras. It appears that Epaphras was so concerned with the doctrinal health of his church that he went all the way to Rome. I wish I had a map to show you how far across the Mediterranean Sea it was. We think, well, we know where Rome is, but we think that he went, we think Paul is in Rome when he wrote this. Um, just, and we see that in chapter four, verse 18, that Paul is in prison, and so we're, we're deducing from that. It seems that Epaphras went all the way to Rome to tell Paul about the condition of the church. And from this chapter, from this book, we see that he gave him two pieces of of news. And we'll spend the rest of our time talking about those. It seems that he told Paul about the church at Colossae's firm faith and trashy teaching. Firm faith and trashy teaching. I don't want to tell you how long it took me to come up with a T for trash. I'm not good at these alliteration things, right? Firm faith and trashy teaching. You won't even remember the alliteration, will you? Let's let's think about the firm faith first. We won't talk about this too much tonight because we'll see this a lot in chapter 1 in the coming weeks. But we see that Paul, who had never seen the Colossians face-to-face, had so many positive things to say about the church there. We could start with what he says in verse 2. He calls them saints. And faithful brothers. That word is, it's a word, it's it's brothers and sisters. He calls them saints and faithful. I love this. Even though there are problems at this church, and even though Paul is like super Christian guy, and even though Paul knows more theology than all them put together probably, he was able to hear about them from a distance and he was glowing with thanksgiving. Even though there were problems, he does not identify them according to their errors or according to their sin. He identifies them according to their spiritual status. Did you see that? They're not heretics. They're not imbeciles. They're not fools. They're saints. Holy ones. Set apart by God for God. He says they're faithful. They're brothers and sisters. It's a term of great intimacy. And it's all because of the very next phrase there in chapter 2. Because they are all in Christ. You see that? In Christ. It's one of Paul's favorite phrases. And he uses it in a lot of different ways uh, so that it, it often is full of rich meaning. But in this case, particularly in the context of this book, we should note, I think, that Paul is using it to distinguish that they are not in Adam. But they are in Christ. There's a distinction. All humans are either in Adam, dead, or in Christ, alive. And that changes everything. Paul said this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He said that, for as in Adam all die, so in Christ, what? All shall be made alive since these brothers and sisters are like Paul in that they are in Christ, that means that they are no longer a part of the old age. The age of sin and death. They're no longer a part of that age. So they don't need to live like they're a part of that age anymore. But now, they're a part of a new age. The age of redemption that was inaugurated by Christ when he conquered death and walked out of the grave. One commentator put it like this. I think this is great. I can't do any better. He said that it, being in Christ represents a total reorientation of one's existence. A total reorientation of one's existence. And I'm so excited to work through how this plays out in the next months because it's another way of saying that to be in Christ, it changes everything. The gospel affects how we view And relate to one another. Paul looked into the doctrinal mess there at Colossae and he found so many things to praise God for and so many things to encourage the Colossians for and so many reasons to be genuinely thankful. He particularly noted that the gospel has taken root among them and it was bearing fruit and so he was sure to praise God for that. Let me ask you, Is this how you and I view our brothers and sisters in Christ? Do we have an eye for kingdom growth? Are we overflowing in prayer and and thanksgiving at the good things? At the reports of good order? Or at the reports of love? Are Are you quick to thank God for every indication of love you see in others? Or are you so focused on the problems... The mistakes, the quirks, the annoyances of your fellow brothers and sisters that you fail to see them in Christ. My dad is a custom home builder. And back before the market changed, he used to build these big homes. And, and I worked with him as, I worked for a painter. And so I'd spend a lot of time in these houses painting and, and doing the finishing work. And, and some of them had just elaborate trim and all this. And, and we'd spend weeks doing the final painting and, and all this. And I remember this, um, this million-dollar house, so elaborate and the homeowner the, the 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 buyer of the house, came in, and she was walking around and she was inspecting every little thing and she was carrying around these little post it circled dots and putting a dot on every imperfection that she wanted us to fix and that 's fine right let put kind of part out of we want to fix up, but man, she was so cranky and so grouchy that she put a dot on everything like she didn 't see that there were Tens of thousands of hours, of incredible craftsmanship, put in this. All she saw were the mistakes. My dad's a real lighthearted guy, and he was following her around. He put a dot on his nose and was following her around, and she turned around and he kind of pulled it off. Was, yeah. see, so often we're like that. We fail to see the marvelous craftsmanship of God, and we only see the mistakes. But when you understand that, brothers and sisters, that we are all in Christ. And that we are God's workmanship. It totally reorients how we relate to one another. That's one of the ways that you can put up with your annoying friend, spouse, kids, Sunday school teacher, pastor, right? That's when we understand that we are in Christ. Let's be like Paul on the lookout for God's work so we can celebrate it and cooperate with it. Because of Paul's genuine affection, he desired spiritual good for them. That's why, then in verse 2, he said, Grace and peace from God. It's the only source, can't get anywhere else. Grace and peace to you. It's one of the signs that you belong to God's family. You have a genuine desire for spiritual blessings for others, you want them to enjoy God's grace. You want them to enjoy God's peace. So much so that you're willing to pray for it and you're even willing to work for it. You're willing to get involved in their lives. You're willing to move towards them in their struggle, in their difficulty that is so strange to you because you don't struggle like that. Willing to help them experience the grace and peace of God more fully. Paul is Writing to this church, this group of believers, delighting in their firm faith. But he was also concerned about their trashy teaching. Womp, womp. You'll note that, now, okay, now this doesn't really appear in the first two verses, but I think it's, I think it's helpful to, to pay attention to this at the beginning of our series because it's going to come up so often throughout the book of Colossians. It seems to be the whole reason that Paul wrote a Colossians. It appears that something fishy was going on at Colossae. Some funky theological oil is getting diffused among the saints. I meant to delete that sentence because it's so cheesy. And there it is. It's a matter of considerable importance in the book because for us to interpret and apply this book, we've got to understand what the problem was and what was going on. Now the smart people squabble about this. I've spent the last two weeks trying to get my head around the things the smart people say. What is the problem in Colossians? You may not know there's a problem yet, but if you read the book, you'll see there's a problem. We'll address it in more detail. But tonight, I want to introduce it by saying this. We're not exactly sure, right? We're not exactly sure. Because Paul doesn't tell us. So we're not totally clear on what is going on. Paul does not name any false teachers, You can think about it like this. It's like in Colossians, we can hear the alarm, but we don't know where the fire is. That's kind of what it's like to read Colossians. But we can still learn good ways to prevent or put out fires. And so we have to try to do some reconstruction. We've got to be careful with that. So the exact issue is debated. But that doesn't mean we don't know anything. We just don't know all the details. And I think that can actually be helpful for us because God in his providence has not given us all the details, which makes it easier, perhaps, for us to apply the lessons from this book to our situation. As far as I know, there are no churches struggling with this particular theological uh, trickery, right? And so it's really helpful for us. We can still learn from it. So that's helpful. So I thought it'd be helpful to just really quickly, I I am going to try to give you an answer if I don't run out of time. Um, Let's just look quickly. What does the text say about the problem? And I'll just do this real quickly. Uh, This is what the text says, and so this is what we know. I'll do this quickly. Uh, Number one, whatever they were buying into sounded really good. There were plausible arguments. Chapter two, verse four. So we got to be on guard against ideas that sound good, just because it sounds good, doesn't mean it's true, right? You know that, right? Mark and I say it, doesn't mean that it's true because we say it, or if it sounds good. It's only true if it's true. <laughs> That's helpful, isn't it? Another thing we see is that this, this whatever the problem was, is described in chapter 2, verse 8 as hollow and deceptive philosophy. It seems like it's a coherent system, right? Right? The text also says, chapter 2, verse 8, that it's based on human tradition, which sounds maybe a little Jewish, but there's all sorts of traditions. Perhaps it seems that they have formed a view of the Christian life that's not based on Christ only, but also based on human tradition. We have any traditions? Maybe. Some. Yep. Yep. We like traditions. Everybody likes traditions. Even the young people who don't admit they like traditions. They like traditions of not liking traditions, right? We like traditions. How are we influenced by them? The text also says, I guess this is point number four. I've got a lot of these. Uh, Chapter 2, verse 8, that it depends, whatever it is, it depends on the elemental spiritual forces of the world, the ABCs of the world. Also, in chapter 2, verse 8, we learn it does not depend on Christ. A sixth thing we learn is that the teachers were calling for some sort of food restrictions, probably gluten. (laughs) They're calling for some sort of food restrictions and an observance of Jewish holidays. Chapter 2, verse 16. So there's a, sounds like there's a Jewish or a ceremonial aspect to it. Uh, Chapter 2, verse 18 shows us it included ascetic practices and fasting. Verse 18, again, all this is in chapter 2, has something to do with angels. Something to do with angels. Also in verse 18, these fault teachers were making a great deal about visions that they were having. These spiritual experiences. 18 also tells us that it made them proud. We know that's not of God. People were bragging about their spiritual experiences. We also see, chapter 2, verse 19, that that these false teachers were claiming to be Christians, but they were losing connection with the head, Christ. So there's an element of seriousness here. A twelfth thing we see, for sure, is that these false teachers were teaching some sort of rules, that seem to be intended for spiritual growth. Follow these rules and you will grow. Paul called them worldly. Chapter 2, verse 20 through 23. Those are clear things in the text. I think there are a couple of safe assumptions we can make. I'll just make two of them now quickly. Multiple times Paul talks about fullness. You see a couple instances in chapter 2, verses 9 and 10 which a fullness that I think is referring to a spiritual fullness, an experience of God, experiencing God in a certain way. And so I think it's safe for us to say that this false teaching was connected to how Christians were to live and experience the Christian life. A second assumption, I know this doing quickly, is that these false teachers were somehow belittling or minimizing Christ. Probably not directly, but at least indirectly and possibly directory. The, re- the reason I say that is because the whole theme of Colossians. Paul is saying his, his, his answer to the problem is what? Christ is preeminent. The theology in this book is, is so different. or it, the, the style of theology is so different from Paul's other writings that some people are like, well, it couldn't have been Paul. Paul doesn't talk like that in Romans, right? It's like he can't write two different things. It's amazing to me. It's because he's responding to a different context, a different problem. It's contextual theology. So if I could give you a very basic, non-controversial summary of what we know about this problem, I think we could do it like this. The Colossians were tempted to trust something other than Jesus for a full Christian life. How about that as a working Colossian heresy? The Colossians were tempted to trust something or someone other than Jesus for a full Christian life. They were tempted to add something to Jesus. A rule, tradition, a fast, food restriction, something. This was a Jesus plus something scenario. That's something we can relate to, isn't it? tempted to add. How much time do we have? You all with me for five more minutes? You don't have a choice, do you? I guess you do have a choice. I'll do this quickly. Let's, since you're the Wednesday night crowd, right, don't be pride, don't be prideful. Since you're the Wednesday night crowd, let me just give you the three big options so you can feel like you're hearing this for yourself. I didn't know, well, I've said it now. Uh, Some folks think that this could be Jewish mysticism, right? A Jewish mysticism is a very popular option. It relies very heavily on chapter 2, verse 18. You'll notice there that there's this phrase, the worship of angels. The idea is that using fasting and a bunch of rules, people could, I guess, get so hungry that they have spiritual visions, I get that hungry after like four hours sometimes, I think. But I think this is probably more significant, right? They get really hungry and it would induce spiritual visions. And in these visions, they could join in with the angels as the angels worship God. And they say, hey, that's why Paul said, hey, Christ is supreme, not, not the angels. Well, here's, here are the few problems I think with that. Uh, there's a couple I'll mention. I don't know. First of all, chapter 2, verse 18 says the worship of angels, not worshiping with angels. So I think you have to do some interpretive gymnastics and bend some funky ways to, to, to get there. And so I don't think it's a very good interpretation. Secondly, why would Paul be so concerned about showing that Christ is superior to all the other angels and all the spiritual beings if they were just joining with the angels to worship Christ? A second option, and don't—I don't think that's right. So if you didn't follow that, that's fine. Don't worry about it. Remember, right. Jesus is better. That's the answer. A second option that uh, some put forward—smart people, really smart people—is just this is just Judaism. They say that 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 this is just good old-fashioned Judaism, kind of like what was going on at Galatia. My problem with that is that the book is missing three primary, very Jewish elements: the Old Testament. Right? There's not a single Old Testament quote in Colossians. So you'd think that if they're really like, doing the Jewish thing, that there'd be a lot of Old Testament. There's no Old Testament quotes. There's also no reference to the law. Kind of a Jewish emphasis, right? And there's also no significant reference to circumcision. The three kind of Jewish elements. Also, Colossians doesn't read like Galatians at all, does it? So what I think it is, is the third option, which is a syncretism, right? This, this mixture, this Jewish pagan smorgasbord of cosmopolitan sort of cultish ideas all mixed up in with Christianity, which is, uh, is possible. It's a mixture of philosophy and cult religion and cult belief, right? Colosse was a major trade route. It had hot springs, so people, rich people would come and, and you know, bathe in the hot springs. And, and they uh, traded, they were famous for their wool. So there were all these traders coming, coming in and out. It's a place where ideas could be shared along with religious ideas and, and different ideas. We have some research now. We know there's a really strong Jewish settlement, so probably was a lot of Jewish influence there. Uh, but there's also some Greek influences. I won't go into the details here. You can ask me. I know there's like two of you that will care, so those two can ask me um, about the, some of the influences that 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 we see uh, and how that connects with the worship of angels, particularly in in bringing good luck and bringing stability. This idea that the world is is chaotic, and if you can uh, if you can interact with the angels through these special fasts, then then you know they'll kind of like. They'll your fortune will come true, and, and the, it's very magical. And, and the key thing to note I'm oversimplifying, but the key thing to note is that there are false teachers who were bragging about their spiritual experiences, and they were encouraging people not to abandon Christ, but to enjoy more spiritual fulfillment by adding to Christ, by following some set of rules, some set of traditions, some set of, of fasting or something and visions so that they would add to Christ. In other words, as I said before, the Colossians were tempted to trust in something other than Jesus for the full Christian life. Don't you see that there is a worldly version of Christianity which could, it could happen in our church. A version that makes less of Jesus and makes more of rules and traditions. Rather than delighting in Jesus, we delight in experiences or religion. Yet Jesus alone is the only source of salvation. He is, as Colossians tells us, the one God-man who is able to make us alive in Christ and reconcile us to God by nailing our record of debt to the cross. How often we are tempted to drift away from a life that is dependent upon the Word and dependent upon God's Spirit and instead seek to be transformed by rules. Yet there's neither life nor power apart from Christ. So I pray that tonight and over the next six months we will come to see and believe that nothing and no one is better than Jesus. Let's pray and you'll be dismissed. Father, we pray. That you would be glorified in our hearts even as we leave this place. Help us to add nothing to you but see you as all sufficient. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You're dismissed church. Go in peace.